have found in many churches, not all of them, but many churches, there seems to be a lack of teaching from the Old Testament. Uh, a lot of times it's focused on the New Testament, which is true. And, and people would say, well, we have a New Testament. We don't need to focus on the Old Testament at all. And I would disagree with that. I think God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we get to know God more by studying all that we have about him. The Old Testament provides us great insight into God's character, and it provides us great wisdom into who he is, what he's done, and what he's accomplished through this new covenant that he's given us. The author of Hebrews has set the stage. He's made a convincing argument that Jesus is the greatest high priest. He's greater than any high priest that ever lived on this earth. And last week, we saw that even though the line of Jewish people, the line of Judaism, came through the line of Abraham, that there was one person, there was somebody who Abraham recognized as greater than himself. It was Melchizedek. Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek. In return, Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God, blessed Abraham. So we see this priesthood through the line of Melchizedek. And then in Psalm 110, we studied this. David told us, hey, the Messiah, the Messiah that we're waiting for from the Jew, from the, if you were Jewish back then, you were waiting for the Messiah. The Jewish Messiah was not going to come through the line of Aaron, through the tribe of Levi. He was going to come from a different order. He was going to come from the order of Melchizedek. He was from a completely different line. This high priest that we have in Jesus Christ, the high priest, he's a guarantee for what we learned last week called a new covenant. There's a new way that man is going to deal or has, this has already happened, we're talking historically now, it happened with Christ. God is dealing with man differently now than he did under the old covenant. Death always prevented the old high priests from reigning forever. They would die. They would, they would pass on, and another priest would take his place, and they would pass on, another priest would take his place. Our high priest in Jesus Christ was not prevented, is not prevented from serving forever. Yes, he died as a sacrifice for our sins, but we also know that he rose again, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't need to offer daily sacrifices like they did. He sacrificed himself once for all. He did offer up a single sacrifice, which was himself. He gave himself on the cross for us. He's the one who fulfills this role as high priest in our life. Levitical priests were from mortal men. Jesus is God's son. He's the one mediating between you and God. Which would you rather have? A mortal man as a high priest? One who sins and falls just the way you did? Or do as the, or the son of God? Jesus Christ. I would choose Jesus every day. He tells us it's a better covenant. But consider for a moment that you're Jewish. And I would probably say that most of us in this room are not. But consider you were. And you're listening to this biblical argument about Jesus being a high priest because they understood what a high priest did. They understood his role in the temple. They understood that he was the intercessor for them between, between them and God. They would soon begin to say, or they would soon say, wait a minute, You've made a convincing argument. Okay, Jesus is a greater high priest, but he has no temple. Where's he working? He has, we have an earthly temple. We have a temple in Jerusalem at the time this was written. This is where we go to worship. Maybe we just need to recognize Jesus, but we'll do it in that temple. Remember the recipients of this letter. They were Jewish believers who were either considering abandoning Christianity altogether and going back to Judaism 
Or they were playing with the idea of let's just sort of mesh the two together. We're going to take what we like from here, we'll take what we like from there, and we're going to just kind of piece them together so it all just kind of works together. And the author says, no, you don't want to do that. There is a much better covenant in place, and you don't want to forsake the new covenant to go back to the old covenant. Now, I know as a student of the word and also a teacher of the word, some people look and go, this is difficult to understand. The author told us this was going to be hard to understand. He called these next couple of chapters the meat of God's word. It's going to be difficult. You, you may, if you're hearing this for the first time, you might go, I'm not sure I get it. That's okay. You're going to, all you can need to know is we're talking about Jesus today. Okay? But if you've been studying for the word for a while, if you've been walking, some of this stuff should start to click with you. It should start to make sense. Go, wait a minute. There's some, God's hand, you mean God's hand is working sovereignly in all of this? All, from the beginning of time, this is a plan that's unfolding perfectly? Yes, it is. That's exactly what I want to tell you. As we pick up in chapter 8 this morning, we're going to see the author begin to develop this idea of a heavenly sanctuary. Christ is the earthly priest, minister in earthly sanctuaries. Christ, the high priest, ministers in a heavenly sanctuary. But we're also going to see him further defend this idea of a new covenant, or this truth of a new covenant, I should say. Because as a Jewish reader, you would look at this and go, there is no new covenant. There's only the covenant we know, and he wants to prove the point, there is a new covenant. There's something new that God is doing with man. Let's pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. So if you've got nothing of what I just said, he's going to sum it up for you right here. This is the main point. I like that. This is the, what's the main point, Rob? Just get to the main point. Here it is. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Once again, we have a little more information about this high priest. Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the majesty in the heavens. Now, I like the fact that he's seated. And I think it's significant. When you finish work, what do you do? You sit down. You take a rest. That's, at least that's what I do. He's seated in the heavens because the work is finished. What did he say on the cross? It is finished it's finished one commentator said this he said today our lord is seated because his work is completed and he pointed out there are no chairs or there were no there were no chairs in the old testament tabernacle there were no chairs in the temple it doesn't exist the only chair the only seat that you will find would be the mercy seat and no priest would ever enter into the holy of holies to take a seat on top of the ark of the covenant if he did, it would cost him his life. The very touching it would. Instead, what did they do? They were always busy offering sacrifice. Morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice, tomorrow's sacrifice, the next day's sacrifice. When do we finish offering sacrifices? We don't. We have to keep going. Every day there's new sacrifices. Every time somebody new comes in and wants to atone for their sins, there's new sacrifices. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Each repeated sacrifice was only a reminder that none of the sacrifices they were making would ever provide a finished work of salvation. It was only temporary. It was only covered. It was an atonement. That word means covering. The blood of animals did not wash away sin. It does not cleanse a guilty conscience. It only covered sin. Oh, but the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. You see, Christ died in his own words. What did he say? To take away the sins of the world. 
He only did it once. He doesn't have to go back to the cross. Yes, he is seated, but don't overlook where he's seated. At the right hand of the throne of majesty. The right hand of God. Where is this throne? It told you right there. In the heavens. Jesus Christ is now exalted higher than anybody could ever be exalted. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Him and the Father are one, he told us. There's a trinity in place. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's ministering not in an earthly temple, but a tabernacle in the heavens. Consider it a heavenly sanctuary. He's ministering in a superior tabernacle on the basis of a superior covenant established by a superior sacrifice. Why would you want the old covenants when there's a new covenant that is so much better? You see, way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 25, verse 8, as God's laying out to Moses, and this is what the tabernacle looks like, he said this. He said, let them make me a sanctuary. In other words, God's going to come from heaven. I'm going to dwell with them. This is where I'm going to dwell, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. In other words, there's a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly place of worship, a heavenly throne room of God. And when God said to Moses, hey, I want you to build an earthly tabernacle to the Jewish people. and I'm going to dwell there in the Holy of Holies. I want you to pattern it after what you see in the heavens, after what I show you in the heavens. So the earthly tabernacle is nothing but a picture of the heavenly tabernacle, which means when you get to heaven, if you know what the earthly tabernacle looks like, you're going to go, wow, I see all the connections here. I see there's, a, there's the throne of God, there's the holy place, there's the incense, there's a sea, the, the, the brazen, the, the washes where there's going to be a sea of glass before the, before the throne of God. Revelation 4 tells us that. You see, the earthly tabernacle was erected by man. It was built by man. It was a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Sacrifice for sin was an essential part of the priesthood. Jesus had to have, if a high priest has to offer sacrifice for sin, Jesus being the high priest would have to offer sacrifice for sin also. And he did. He offered a superior sacrifice. He offered himself. There's no need for a recurring sacrifice. In the Old Testament tabernacle, Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Jesus said, I am going to offer myself. And because he was the spotless lamb that was sacrificed for the sins, to take away the sins of the world, what did John the Baptist say? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because he fulfilled that role, it's, the sins have been completed. There's, there's no more. You don't have to go tomorrow and, and, and offer a sacrifice. Under the Old Testament, you would. You'd have to continually offer sacrifices to continually cover your sins. And once a year, the high priest would venture into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the Lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to offer atonement for the sins of all the nation Israel. It's not happening anymore. It doesn't need to take place. Look at verse 4. For if he, that's Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest. Why wouldn't Jesus be a priest if he was on earth? Because he wasn't from the line of Aaron. We covered that last week. He wasn't physically qualified. He came from a different priesthood. He came from the order of Melchizedek, not from the Levites, not from the Levitical priesthood. He never attempted, if you study the scriptures, he never walks into the, into the temple and says, you know, let me make the sacrifice today. You know, I know, you, listen, don't you know who I am? Let me make the sacrifice for everybody today. I could do it better than, than you can do it. 
He, he would have been breaking the law if he did that because he wasn't according to the line of Aaron. Instead, he's outside of the law. He's fulfilling every part of the law, but he's according to the lineage or to the line of Melchizedek. He never attempted to fulfill or never attempted to make. He wasn't qualified to serve in this inferior priesthood under the line of Aaron. But he was the only one qualified to serve in the superior priesthood. Nobody else was qualified to do what he did. Look at verse 4. Let me start from the beginning just for context. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Since there is a heavenly temple or tabernacle that served as a pattern for the earthly tabernacle and later that first century temple, Jesus' ministry as our high priest takes place in this heavenly tabernacle. So to the Jewish person, we'll say, well, where's he ministering? Where's it? You have a high priest in Christ. Where's he? He's in the heavens. He's in the heavenly tabernacle, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's not in the copy that's, that, was, that existed on below. It's not in the shadow that was built on earth. He's, up in, he's in the original tabernacle. He's in the throne room of God ministering. Jewish people during the first century, they took great pride in that first century temple. It was beautiful. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was spectacular. It was an unbelievably beautiful earthly temple. Even the disciples remarked to Jesus, hey, check out the temple. Look at it. It's amazing. Can you see, you see what's going to happen? Look at how beautiful it is. But from the very first tabernacle that was built in the wilderness to Solomon's temple, to this temple they stood before here in the first century, they were all built by man. And in fact, the first century temple was built by Herod, who wasn't even a godly man. It was a work of art, but it was built by man. These men made temples. These man-made temples are nothing compared to the glory of the heavenly temple that Jesus serves in. I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to see what it looks like. One day we will worship him there. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, one day you will be in this heavenly temple. You've got to understand what it might look like. That's why we know the Old Testament. You don't want to be lost when you get there. You've got to know where the bathroom is, right? You won't need the bathroom. Revelation chapter 4 gives us a brief look into what it might look like. It tells us it's colorful, of rainbows, worshipers all around, a sea of glass before the throne, lightning, thundering, Seven lamps burning before the throne. Just imagine what this worship, just imagine what this worship service is going to look like when we finally make it to heaven. All of the Christians, take, take the greatest concert, the greatest moment in worship you've ever had, it's going to be tiny. You're not even going to remember it. When you stand there before the throne of God, before the glassy sea, bowing down before him, it's going to be an amazing worship service. Now look at verse 6. But now... He, this is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Underline this verse if you'd like to take notes in your Bible. He obtained a more excellent ministry. He's a mediator of a better covenant and it was established on better promises. He has a more excellent ministry. It's greater than all that of the earthly priests combined. Why? Because their ministry couldn't take away sin, it only covered sin. It only atoned for it. And Jesus is a mediator, 
It says of a better covenant with better promises. The word mediator means it's a go-between. It's an arbitrator. It's one who helps two parties reach an agreement. It's like Jesus is saying to the Lord, all right, God, we're going to deal with mankind this way. I've reached an agreement. Here's what we've come up with. He's a better mediator. He's mediated a better covenant between God and man. Who was the mediator of the old covenant? Moses. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Do you remember when the people of Israel, in the book of Exodus, they're gathered around Mount Sinai. They hear the thunderings. They see the lightning. They hear the voice of God. Remember what they said? They said, oh, they're scared to death. They're terrified. They said, Moses, we don't want to talk to God. You go on up there, you talk to God, and whatever he tells us to do, you come back down and you tell us and we'll do it. That's what they said. This is the way it's going to work, Moses. You go talk to him, you be our mediator between God and man, and you tell us what, you, what God wants us to do. So Moses goes up on the mountain, 40 days later he comes down, and what are they doing? They've already created for themselves a golden calf. They're bowing down, they're having a party, a licentious party, worshiping the golden calf. Moses comes down off the mountain, he breaks all ten commandments at once as he drops them on the ground. He gets them in their place, he's got to bring them all back together again. He has a heart-to-heart with God, and basically God's saying, Moses, I'll just, I'll just destroy all the Israelites. We'll just start over, and Moses says, God, you can't do that. You can't, you can't go against your word. But instead, Moses says, I need to see your glory, Lord. And God shows him his glory. And this is, if you want me to continue, Lord, you need to show me your glory. And God does that. Moses is there on the mountain, puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he shows him the glory. This fear that they had of God in the moment only lasted but a brief 40 days. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. But Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. You see, this is nothing, what we're learning here, this was written 2,000 years ago. God revealed himself to the people of Israel long before that. This, this, this whole picture, this image that we're learning about who God is comes through history, through secular history, but also history has been said it's his story. It's biblical history. As Paul is writing to Timothy, he said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there's another important verse. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Paul says there's only one mediator between God and men. And he gave himself as a ransom to all to be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So what we're establishing here is that Christ is the mediator between God and man. Our culture says something completely different. Do you know that? Our culture says you can get to God any way you want. You have your way to get to God. I have my way to get to God. You know, that's not what the Bible teaches The Bible says there is only one way. There's only one deal on the table. If you want to find God, you can only do it through Jesus Christ. Now, you can create a God for yourself, but it's not the God of the Bible. You can title it God, him God, or her God, or whatever you want to do, but it's not the God of the Bible. Sometimes people will say, well, me and the big guy upstairs, we've got got an agreement. No, you don't. Maybe you have an agreement with somebody, but it's not the big guy upstairs. Because his agreement is written right here for us. He says, there's only one person that you can come to me through, and that's Jesus Christ. You go, Rob, that's so (laughs) close-minded. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. I believe it wholeheartedly. I think there's many people that are deceived into thinking they're in, in the right presence with God, but they're not at all. They're trying to come a different way, and it doesn't exist. All roads lead to, Rob, all roads lead to God. No, that is the biggest lie from hell. If all roads led to God, Christ would not have to be crucified on a cross and suffer for our sins. 
It just doesn't, it's, I just hate to say it, it's not true. As we come to verse 7, the author will tell us that the old covenant, it was flawed. It had faults. And even the prophet Jeremiah told us it would be replaced. Well, what was the problem with the old covenant, Rob? Why, did we, you know, why, why didn't God just give us the new covenant in the first place? Listen, here's why. The old covenant, it was dependent upon you and your ability to keep the law. If you do what's right, you get a blessing. If you don't do what's right, you get a cursing. If you don't do what's right, off to the priest, you've got to make a sacrifice for your sin. The new covenant says, no, no, it's not going to be dependent upon man. I'm, God says, I'm going to make the sacrifice in my son, Jesus Christ. The only thing that's to be required of you is to believe in faith that I've made that sacrifice. And then he says, listen, for you guys, for you, no, that what the Jewish person that would say, no, there is no new covenant. He, he would say this, even the prophet Jeremiah told you there was a new covenant coming. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah said there's a new covenant on the way. He tells you right there in verse 8. He says, because finding fault with them, he says, this is the Old Covenant, this is Jeremiah speaking, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. With who? With the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. When was that? In the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Why? Because they did not continue in my covenant. I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now just imagine... You're receiving this letter. It's in the first century. You've grown up Jewish. You have a Jewish friend and you're trying to tell them about Jesus. And you can imagine the Jewish friend saying, no, 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 no. There is no new covenant. There's nothing wrong with the old covenant. But the author points out, wait a minute, Jeremiah said there's a new covenant. Why would Jeremiah the prophet say there's a new covenant? And he, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31 if you want the scripture reference. You can read it later. Jeremiah told them there was a better covenant coming. Hey, God's going to meet with man. It's only going to be better. Jeremiah prophesied this, interestingly enough, while Judah was in captivity. So the nation Israel has been completely fallen apart. They've fallen pag followed pagan gods. Judah is in captivity in Babylon. The northern kingdom Israel is in, in, in Assyrian captivity. So they're not even, they don't even have a country at this point. And Jeremiah says, hey, there's a better covenant coming. God's going to do something different in the future. It's coming in the very new future. There's going to be a better covenant coming. Notice he says this covenant is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If you're not Jewish, you might ask the question, wait, 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 I, I'm not of the house of Israel. I'm, I'm not Jewish. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know anybody that's Jewish. I, that's, how, is that, how is that me? Or is this, is this just a promise for Israel? I believe the answer to that question is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter to Gentiles, please remember that this letter was received by Hebrews. 
They were Jewish. They were of the tribe of, or, or they were of Israel or Judah. They were, this was to them. But in answering the question to Gentiles, those people who are not Jewish, that would be you, me, and any of you others that aren't Jewish. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And that doesn't mean he's embarrassed of it. It means it'll stand up to any argument that you have against it. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. That would be the Gentiles. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So it's the Jew first, and then it comes to the Gentile. When Jesus began his ministry on earth, who did he go to? To the Jewish people. He went to his own people. When he sent out his disciples, he sent them to the house of Israel. When he commissioned the church to witness, where did he say to start? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Most of Israel and its leaders rejected the Messiah and its message. As a result, the gospel spread. It moved from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul would tell us in the book of Romans that us as Gentiles were grafted in. Are you saying we became Jewish? No, I'm saying God is dealing with man under a new covenant. We don't have to become Jewish. We're grafted in. The old is done away with. We are now grafted in. We are all one church. We're not Jewish. The church is made up of regenerated Jews and Gentiles who are one body in Christ. If a Jewish person wants to get saved, same way you get saved, through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what country they're from. If anybody wants to get saved, God says, I'm dealing with mankind through Jesus Christ. Period. There's no other way. All who are in Christ share the new covenant, which was purchased at the cross. You see, under the law, all you ever felt, all you ever found was failure. The law says, don't do that. Don't do this. And once again, day after day, you find yourself going, ah, I don't want to do these things. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. And you go, I can relate to that. But then if you keep reading, he says, who will deliver, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. See, under the law, it just convicted you. It's a schoolmaster. It should bring you to a place of going, I can't do this anymore. I need a savior. I need a new way. I need a mediator. And that's where Jesus says, I'll do that for you. I'll go to the cross. I'll pay for your sins. That's why there needs to be a new covenant. They did not continue. Israel did not continue in the old covenant. That's why it, 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 fa it failed. Why did it fail? Because they wanted to be like every other nation. They had a relationship with God. God initially established Israel. He said, listen, guys, I'm going to establish blessings and cursings. If you do what I say here, I'm going to bless you. But if you don't do this or you do this thing that I'm telling you not to do, there's going to be a cursing. It's black and white. There's no, all right, try again later. There's no, all right, I'll just look past that. God can't, it's not in his nature to do that. So it was completely, their, their relationship with God was completely dependent on their ability to keep the law. Now, how many of us like rules? That's what the law is, right? It's a bunch of rules. And you have, how are you at following your own rules? Make some, have some kids make some rules and see how well they Dad, you don't do that. What do you mean I don't do that? How, try, how, are you, how are you doing on your New Year's resolutions? What? That was like three months ago, almost four months ago now. Those are rules that you made. Usually we always find ourselves falling short. You know what you do next year? You make the same resolutions. The gyms love it. Everybody joins in January. They run all the specials. But this new covenant, this new covenant, he says it's based on something different. 
It's not man's ability to keep the law. This new covenant is going to be based on God's grace. Ooh, God's grace. It has Jesus as a co-signer. In other words, it's his. He's the, one, he's the one guaranteeing it. It's a covenant marked by believing and receiving. I'm believing in Jesus Christ. I'm receiving the grace of God instead of earning and deserving. God, I kept the law. Now you have to bless me. Which one would you rather have? Would you want God to reward you for all of your good deeds and bad deeds? Or would you rather just say, would you rather God say, here, I'm going to give you my grace. You believe on me. I'm going to give you my, we're not going to worry about that bad stuff. We're just going to look past that and we're going to keep you growing and you're going to, you're going to, someday you're going to make it into the kingdom with me. We're just, we're just not going to, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to forgive those sins, both past, present, and future. Which one do you want? Do you, do you, I would hope that you wouldn't say, I want to stand before God on my own two feet. I would hope that you wouldn't say, I can handle this. I, let me, I am who I am. Let me stand before him because you're going to fall short because you would have to be judged under the law. Just pick the 10 commandments, pick the first one. Chances are you probably can't keep it. You've not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. You haven't. You've failed in that. We've put other things before him. But he said something interesting. He said this new covenant that I'm, inst- that I'm instituting, that he instituted, it's based on something different. Not man's ability to keep the law, but it's God's grace. But he also said the promises are better in the new covenant. It's, be- it's, it's based on a better set of of promises. Well, what promises is it based on? It told you there in verse 10, the first one. God says this, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the new covenant, the laws are not written on stone, but on the hearts of man. In other words, God says, I'm, when you believe on Jesus Christ, the Lord comes to indwell you and he writes, the Holy Spirit ministers to you right and wrong. Do you know that you know you're convicted when you do something wrong? You, you, you just feel it. You just know I shouldn't be doing this. If you're not convicted, then it's not wrong. But 99% of the time, we're convicted when we do something wrong, especially if you're a believer on Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I'm not a believer, so I'm not convicted. Yes, you are, because the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin. That's one of the reasons he was sent. He's testifying of Jesus Christ. And he's convicting the world of sin. You can be sure that when you go to evangelize your friend, they have this guilt. They have this sin. There's a conviction in them. There's something missing in them. And they just need to know what it is. Now, you may have to explain it to them. You may have to teach it to them. But there's a desire for man to know God because we were created by God and he wants a relationship with us. And we need a relationship with him. We just have to figure out how to get that. Well, he says through Jesus Christ. He's mediating that to us. We don't need the rules to put on us or regulations around us. The Lord lives in us. And the greatest thing about Christianity, when you're walking with the Lord, when you're living in the new covenant, you don't have to have the resolutions and regulations, the stipulations and the obligations. Those are all ways of the law. Instead, it's real simple. You just do what the Lord's writing on your heart. Do what he's telling you in the word telling you in your mind, whispering in your ear at the moment, responding to the conviction and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's what he promises. See, the law just told you right and wrong. Under the new covenant, he says, not only am I going to take away the law, I'm going to give you my grace. I'm going to help you accomplish what I want you to do. Well, what do we have to do? You have to be obedient. You have to walk in it. You have to listen when he says, don't do that. Don't look at that. Don't get angry. Don't talk like that. Don't make that face. Don't say that to her or him. Don't do it. Don't hit him with the elbow right now. 
I know it's tempting. Don't do it. See, we have to just respond in obedience. We just do what he's telling us to do. The second promise. He says, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother. Saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. Now, the future fulfillment of this would be when every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here's what I've come to know. Under the new covenant, there's a greater and a more intimate relationship with God. Under the old covenant, the high priest was your mediator. You had to go to the temple or the tabernacle, whatever time period you lived in, and you would have to meet with the high priest. Now, it said Jesus is our mediator. There is no go-between between man and God except Jesus Christ, which we know from the Trinity is God himself. There's no go-between. He's, he's, he's your one. You have 24-7 access to God. Do you realize that? When you worry tomorrow, or you, something bad happens, you, don't ha- you can call the pastor and you say, hey, will you come over and pray with me? And sure, I'll come over and pray with you. But I hate to tell you a little bit of a secret. My prayers don't carry any more weight with God than any other Christian's prayers. It's the same thing. I'd love to pray with you. Don't stop calling. I like to be there and, and help you walk through it. But the truth is, you on your own, I'm not a mediator between you and God. Not at all. If I am a mediator, then you're misunderstanding my role as a pastor. I'm just a teacher of God's word. You have access to God. Now, with that said, why don't you spend more time talking to him? Why don't you spend more time with the troubles and the struggles and the stresses and the worries of life going, Lord, what do you want me to do here? And trust that when you're walking with him, you're walking in the spirit and, and, you, and you begin to make decisions, he's leading you. Just trust that. Now, well, well, God led me into sin. No, God would never lead you into sin. That's contrary to God's word. He would never lead you. The Holy Spirit would never whisper in your ear to do something that was contrary to the Bible. It just wouldn't happen. He can't contradict himself. He can't lie. So when it comes down to it, here's what we need to understand. We have an access to God that we fail to use a lot of times. Or it's oftentimes our last resort. I don't know what else to do except pray. I'm guilty of saying that. I guess all we can do is pray. Do we really, when we say that, we're, we're diminishing the power and the value of prayer. You have access through the mediator, Jesus Christ, to the creator of the heavens and earth, who's the one running and orchestrating your life, and we go, ah, I don't believe that. Okay. Okay. But you have the opportunity to say, Lord, this is my, this is my problem in life. This is, I need some help. I need some wisdom. I need to, uh, what do you want me to do here? You have a plan to wait, and you can wait on him and watch him lead you. He'll lead you in everything from where you live to where you go to church to where you work to all kinds, to how to raise kids, all these things and issues and problems in life. They're all found here. He'll, he'll has, he has answers for you, but you have to want them. You have to go after them. If you go, no, I don't believe that, that's okay. You don't have to. He says, I'm not going to make you believe it. I'm not going to make it happen. Don't misunderstand me. I love to pray with people. But there are no angels that sing when I wake up in the morning because I'm a pastor. I wake up cranky sometimes just like you guys. And my wife has to look at me and say, Rob, you need to go spend some time with the Lord. I said, I know. It's just, it's, we're just human. That's what happens. Under the new covenant, know this though. There are no secondhand experiences with God. You don't know God by proxy or priest alone. But you know him personally through Jesus Christ. This is why we as Christians say it's a personal relationship. You don't know him through the church. You don't know him through me. You don't know through him through your grandmother or your grandson. You know him through Jesus Christ and the study of God's word. 
Those things will never change. In verse 12, he says, another great promise. For I, this is God, will be merciful to the unrighteous. Your heart should say, thank you, Lord. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Even when they fail, God says, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. You know, there was no mercy under the law. There was no mercy. You either wrong, right or wrong. You either kept it or you didn't. They tried to fudge it. They tried to interpret it. They tried to set certain boundaries, but it was a simple black or white thing. In fact, God says, I'm, I'm not going to remember their sins. Now, don't misunderstand. He doesn't forget. Like he can't remember, like he's getting old. Like, hey, I can't remember that. He's saying, I'm choosing not to remember Rob's sins. Or put your name in there. I'm choosing not to remember your sins. It means God is not going to recall them. The old covenant offered an atonement, a covering for sin. The new covenant offers complete and total cleansing from sin. This is, as a Christian, this is why I go, wow, with the Lord. I am so thankful I don't have to go and make sacrifices. Sometimes I run across people. They say, Rob, you, you know, I appreciate what you're saying and that grace and that mercy and that, I really like that and I like the fact that he's not going to remember my sins anymore, but I, you just don't know me. You, you don't know how bad that I've been. You don't, know, understand what, you don't understand who I've hurt. You understand the decisions I've made. You, you, just, you just don't have, you, and if I told you who I was, you'd probably throw me out of this church altogether. You, I just, I don't, you just don't know me. I always bring them right here to scripture and say when someone comes to God through the mediator Jesus Christ it says that God does not remember their sins any longer they're forgiven they're forgiven why do you keep bringing them up and who is if, if it does keep coming to mind who do you think's bringing them up in your head of your past the enemy if anybody had a right to feel guilty about his past it was the apostle Paul the Apostle Paul, if you don't know, before he came to Christ, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious group. He was probably one of these priest leaders. That He wasn't the high priest, but he was these leaders they're talking about. And he so hated Christians, he stood by as Stephen was martyred. He locked many of them in prison. He destroyed families. He ripped people away. He went all the way on his way to Damascus to get Christians. He wanted them all in prison because they were coming against the Lord. If anybody had guilt in his past about the things they were doing, it would be the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul made a profound statement. In the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 13, he said this. Now think about his guilt. Think about his past. Think about all that he'd done wrong. He said this. He said, brethren, brothers, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I mean, I'm not where I need to be yet. I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, one thing I do, this is Paul, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The apostle Paul says, I'm not thinking about my past. You want some counseling? Here it is. Forget what's behind. Press on to what's ahead. Lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus lay hold of you. Too many times we spend too, way too much time thinking about the past when we should be spending time pressing on towards the goal. How many times have you been haunted by your past? How many times do you think Satan brings it up to keep you reminded of that mistake that you made? 
Maybe there's something daily that reminds you of it. Maybe whatever it might be. Maybe there's, Rob, I have to see this every day. It doesn't matter. You have to put it in the past and you have to continue to press on towards the goal. You see, I believe with all my heart that every one of us was created to accomplish a purpose for God. And he says, I will lead you to that purpose, but you have to walk in obedience to those things I've called you to. What if I don't? Then you're going to just meander through this life until it ends someday. What if I do? Then you get the blessing of watching God work on your life. You get the blessing of looking up saying, God, here I am. What do you want me to do? And too many people put limitations on God. Well, God, I, I, I'll do this and that, but, but I don't think I could do that. I, I couldn't move, God. I, I, that just wouldn't work. My family's here. God, I couldn't do this. Or I, you know, that, that's, just, that, that's just not me. What if God wanted you to do something crazy? Would you do it? Or would you treat it like, well, let me, go ahead, tell me what you want me to do, Lord, and then I'll, I'll consider it. What are you going to do, pray about it? He already told you. Too many people aren't willing to take steps of faith when God says, hey, I want you to step out. That's all I did when I came to Cumberland. Most of you guys know I was a police officer working in a violent crimes unit, working cases down in South Florida, and the Lord, over a period of years, knocked on my heart, said, I want you to Cumberland and start a church. Okay, how do I do that? I don't know. I'll, I'll show you. Okay, one step at a time. What does that look like? I don't know. Never done it before. Here we are. Lord's having his way in my heart doing a work here that's amazing. From radio stations to the ministry to people's lives being changed. It's not me at all. Don't give me any credit for it. All I did was say I'd go. He's the one that's done all the work. But what a blessing that is. Look at verse 13 as we wrap this up. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now let me just show you this. I think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. There's, there's debate about it, and it's not for sure, but I personally think it was Paul. He's writing this somewhere around 61, 62, 63 AD, okay? So he's telling them there's a new covenant. And they're looking at the temple going, what do you mean there's a new covenant? we got the priests. They're right there. They're making sacrifices. Just seven years later, about seven years later, in 70 AD, the Romans would come in to Jerusalem. They would conquer Jerusalem. They would destroy the temple. They wouldn't leave one stone laying upon another. It would be completely leveled up on the temple mount. And that's the way it is today. It's not level. The Dome of the Rock is there. The Muslim mosque is there. But there is no temple. There are no more sacrifices being made. There's, it's not happening. When, when the author here says it's becoming obsolete and growing old, is ready to vanish away, that is the prophecy that came true physically. There is no priest offering sacrifices on the Temple Mount today. They're trying to. They want to rebuild a temple up there. They're trying to, through DNA, study who the Levitical priesthood is so they get the right priest up on there and, and make temples. They, the, the, they think in six days they could have, a, if they had a temple, a place they were allowed to sacrifice, they said we could begin in six days. But God said, no, it's not happening. It's, it's, I'm wiping it out. I'm dealing with man in a different way. It's a dispensation of grace. It's a covenant of grace. I'm now coming to man based on my grace. Think of it this way. God has struck a new deal with his people and it includes all those who would come to him through the mediator, Jesus Christ. Is there any other way, Rob? No, I don't know how else to say it. It has to be through Jesus Christ. In this new covenant, he promises to give us a new life. He says we'll be born again. He promises to give us a new heart, a new start, and a new part. Believe is all that we have to do. That's the first step. I believe on Jesus Christ, and then the work begins. What an amazing promise. The journey of walking with God begins at the moment you say, I believe. You go, Rob, I don't know if I can do that. Well, that's your choice. 
But I can testify to you, I can tell you from my own life, the moment you do that, your life will be changed forever. And there is nothing better. I would never, ever, ever, ever go back to my old life. No, thank you very much. Been there, done that. I know the pain. I know the heartache. I know the suffering it causes. I don't want any part of it. Now, the good thing is, God's not done with me yet. He's not done with you either. There's a lot more I need to grow. There's a lot more learning I need to do. But as we walk through this, this journey together with him, the Holy Spirit will lead us and convict us if you will let him. The question is, will you believe and will you walk with the Lord? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've given us this book of Hebrews, this letter. Lord, it's deep. It's even hard to understand sometimes if we don't have the foundation in Judaism. High priests and temples and tabernacles and covenants, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But Lord, as we begin to understand that your hand has been working throughout all of history, that you made a covenant with man that we couldn't keep, and that covenant showed us that we needed a Savior, then you stepped in and you fulfilled that role. You fulfilled that mediator position. We didn't have Moses as a mediator. We have you, Lord Jesus. Wow. To think of your hand. To think that you went to the cross for us. Personally, for me. That is amazing grace. Unbelievable that you would do that for us. Lord, I pray that there's anyone here this morning that might not know you. They've never made that decision to follow you. I pray their heart would be moved. If the Holy Spirit's convicting them at this very moment, they would just simply say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I want to follow you. I see there's something more. I want that, Lord. I pray that you would come into their heart as you say. You would change their life. May they be born again. And following a new life, Lord, may you begin to minister to them and leading them in your ways along your paths. Lord, may we all lay hold of those things that you laid hold of us for. May we accomplish your will. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to do it. May you fill us, may you refresh us, and may you renew us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.